Well, hello, everybody. Um, it's good to see us all here. I think this is week nine, is that right? Of the basics of the BCP, week nine? Yes. And so we are going to talk about um, holy matrimony, our, our service, our form of the solemnization of matrimony. Now, what you'll notice is that once we get into um, the section that begins with baptism, um, the services are ordered in a very logical pro progression, right? So we, we have baptism, which for most folks happens when you're a baby, um, then the offices of instruction, which are going to be when you're learning the basics of the faith, then your confirmation when you're entering adolescence and you're, you're getting confirmed in the faith. And then for most folks, the next step is going to be getting married and starting a family. And we'll see that um, that, that progression continues in that logical fashion from there. So since last week we did confirmation, now we're going to look at the solemnization of matrimony. You can start this on page 300 in your, in your text. So um, who remembers from last week the main reason why our reformers and the authors of the prayer book did not consider um, confirmation to be a sacrament by the narrow definition um, used in, in the catechism at the, at the reformers fair, uh, favored. Isn't it because Jesus didn't do it? Uh, because, yeah, he did not command it, right? He yeah. did not command Yeah, so he didn't command, or it wasn't one of the ones he commanded you to do. Right. And that's, that's the only really big ones the are basis. the ones that he commands. Yeah. And we find the same thing when it comes to, to what is commonly called the sacrament of marriage. It doesn't get that capital S sacrament, um, you know, in, in, the, in the way that our, our formularies in the, in the old prayer book and the 39 articles of religion define it. It's also not considered a sacrament, again, because it, it A, was not commanded by Christ. And, and in that de definition used by the reformers, a sacrament must be something commanded by Christ. Um, and then it doesn't have necessarily a particular definite sign um, signified. There's not a material thing necessarily that goes with matrimony, nothing that's universally scripturally speaking. And we're going to find out a little bit more when we look at the history of Christian marriage. Another reason why this ends up not meeting that same high bar for sacrament in, in the reformer's perspective. So certainly we do see marriage in the scriptures. Um, that's absolutely there. There's no doubt about that. Uh, what's, what would you say is the earliest, scripturally speaking, example of, of what we might call holy matrimony? Isn't it Genesis 3? Yeah, I think it's Genesis 3. Um, it is Genesis, actually a little bit earlier. <laughs> it's huh. even earlier than 3. Um, but, but yeah, those first few chapters of Genesis, um, when, we, when we see um, that, that rationale, so therefore man shall leave his, or, therefore the man and the woman will be, become one flesh, a man will leave his mother, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And... And when asked about issues of um, morality and biblical morality and ethics regarding marriage and sexuality, what does Jesus do? He goes all the way back to, to Genesis. So we do have a biblical rationale for marriage. But we, what we see happening in the church is that we don't have anything in the Bible specifically told us how that covenant is entered into. It describes it as being, you know, the man and the woman, it is before God, all these things, but it doesn't tell us what that form might look like. And when we look in the scriptures, we do see examples of um, Jewish marriage. Um, we, you know, Jesus uses some of that in his parables. We have the the par various parables that, that the setting is a wedding. We see the wedding of Cana in the early chapters of St. John's Gospels, where Jesus is, is at the wedding. Um, 
But what we find out, historically speaking, is that the way that the Jewish people, even in Jesus' day, kind of entered into marriage is not the way that the church ended up doing things. Um, remember how we said last week that because confirmation does not meet that high bar of, of that narrow definition of sacrament, it could be legitimately altered as needs, right? Um, the, the way we enter into marriage is kind of the same way. We find out that Christian marriage really owes its patterns, kind of the traditional way we do marriage in, in Christianity, less to what's going on in the Second Temple Judaism or even in the Old Testament, and more to the customs that were common among the Romans um, the, the non-barbarians, so to speak, um, in late antiquity. So um, let's, keeping that in mind, let's take a look at our form of solemn, solemnization and matrimony, page 300. So it begins with this, um, we, we have a rubric that talks about um, coming into the body of the church or in some proper house. Um, in the earliest days of the prayer book, it, it specified the church, <laughs> the, um, the old um, pre-Reformation Sarum rites specify doing it kind of in the entryway of the church, in the, in the, in the doorway or in, the, in kind of the, um, um, the narthex area of the church is where, is where it would be done, um, a very public place, but kind of as, at the entryway to the church. Um, for our 28, we, we made things a little bit more flexible where it's, it's um, we see that the church itself is preferable, but if it needs to be done outside the church, um, it's, it says uh, some proper house with their friends and neighbors, they're standing together, um, then it's okay. Um, this is very much a public ceremony, kind of private marriage. Is it really something that we see done um, historically in the church? It's certainly not, not our tradition. Uh, but then we have these opening sentences, this opening paragraph that is so very familiar to English speakers. Dearly beloved, we are gathered together here in the sight of God and in the face of this company to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable state instituted of God, signifying unto us the mystical union that is betwixt Christ and his church, which holy estate Christ adorned and beautified with his presence and first miracle that he wrought in Cana of Galilee and is commended of St. Paul to be honorable among all men and therefore is not by any to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly in the fear of God into this holy estate these two persons pre present come now to be joined. If any man can now show just cause why they may not lawfully be joined together, let him now speak or else hereafter hold his peace. Every English speaker knows at least the beginning of this, right? This is the way we all think of, think of marriage. But here's the thing, that's, that's the Book of Common Prayer language. That's not an adaptation of the Roman way of doing things, but basically it's, it's one of these instances where the beauty of the prayer book is synonymous with, with, with English speaking, um, with the way English speakers think of this. And uh, one, of, one of the big shocks to me when I was preparing for, 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 for my wedding was that the priest that was marrying Heather and I, um, he was used to using the old, the, the 1979 prayer book, which doesn't have any of this as its introductory. And I was like, this is not the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> and he agreed to do something different, um, which, which was very kind of him. Um, I found as a, as a minister, I kind of have a little bit more pity on that chap than I, I did as the groom because everybody wants to do their own thing when it comes to their wedding. <laughs> and uh, convincing folks to stick to the rubrics is, uh, is, is a little difficult. But yeah, so these opening words we all know. In the 1662 prayer book, and I do believe the earlier Church of England prayer books too, so basically all of those official uh, Church of England prayer books from Cranmer's time, we then have three, a, a paragraph that talks about the three reasons that God gave us marriage. I wish this was in the 1928 prayer book. Um, if I'm remembering right from my own wedding, I, I asked um, the uh, priest to use 
the Reformed Episcopal Church's prayer book because they did include these paragraphs because I thought they were very important. But basically, to sum up, I don't have my 1662 with me. It says, okay, three reasons why God gives us marriage. One, to avoid sin. So the idea is that this gives us a proper godly place to exercise um, our, our sexual desires, which, which are a natural part of humanity. Um, and marriage is the proper place for them. So to avoid sin. Number two, to raise godly offspring. Um, marriage is there so that we would have Christian families. Um, most of the church's growth historically has been from people being born into Christian homes and being raised as Christians. Now, that's, of course, not universally. Uh, certainly in missionary circumstances like the very first centuries of the church, um, you know, various times on the frontiers of mission, that's not going to be the case. But most of the of Christian growth historically has come from people being raised as Christians, not from um, Billy Graham crusades or something like that. And that's not to denigrate evangelistic efforts at all. That's a very good thing. Um, I wish our tradition was a little bit better at that um, here in the States. But, um, but it's a heck of a lot easier to raise somebody as a Christian than it is to convert somebody. I'm mean, just from a human perspective. It's a lot easier to do that. And so that's number two. And then the third reason was to, um, as the foundation of society, a godly family is going to be the foundation upon which civilization and, and godly society is built. Um, if any of y'all watched those debates last night, um, I'm so sorry <laughs> if you did. Uh, that, was, that was some ugly, ugly stuff. Um, I did not watch any but snippets. I, I, I knew I was not going to be able to stomach it. But we, we saw um, right there on display the godlessness of our society right now, the, the, the ugliness, the the instability, the vitriol in our society. Um, and I really do believe that breakdown is because we've spent the last 50, 60 years breaking down our families. Um, as the family goes, so does the rest of the society. So uh, that's very sad. And that's, that's certainly not me um, wanting to turn, turn all saints into a focus on the family uh, outpost or anything like that. But this is saying that godly families are very, very important um, for the building of society. Okay, we get then to, to the next sentence. So um, in our prayer book, and I don't recall whether the reasons is before this last sentence of this paragraph or not in the old prayer books, but um, we have this concluding sentence. If any man can show just cause why they may not lawfully be joined together, let him now speak or else hereafter forever hold his peace. So here's the question. What are some um, just causes why someone may not lawfully be joined together? What are some examples of that, do you all think? They're I see the married. lady waving her hand. Okay, already married. Anybody read Jane Eyre? Um, yeah, that's, that's what happens. Um, good night. Spoilers, anybody that hasn't. But that is what happens is about halfway through the book. Um, yeah, they find out that uh, one of the main characters was already married <laughs> and therefore could not lawfully enter into holy matrimony. What's another reason why somebody might lawfully not be able to get married? And we're using lawfully here both in a biblical and legal sense. Pam? Well, biblically, if they're leading a um, a biblical lifestyle. I mean, if they, people know that, that they're carousing or something that they're not, I don't know if that's a reason, uh, but if other people know that he's not or she is leading a double life, so to speak. Yeah, that would probably less fall into may not, not so, that's not so much into the category of quote, may not lawfully be joined together as much as, um, the previous statement about being entered into unadvisedly. <laughs> that's, that's more an issue of unadvisedly than, um, than, than cannot lawfully be married, but that is, that is a good thing. Uh, that's why um, in our diocese, 
um, mar marriage counseling is required um, prior to 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 getting married. So yeah, that's 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 a good thing. Um, anybody else? Anybody else? Uh, Riley. I'm sorry. Same sex. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Certainly in the perspective of the prayer book, um, our diocese, our province, the Anglican Church of North America, the scriptures, you wouldn't even get to this point if it's if it same-sex marriage. Um, yeah, that, that, is, that, that is certainly, that is certainly does not, does not um, fit the bill, uh, biblically speaking, um, prayer book speaking, classically Anglican speaking, and that is very much the the big issue that has been causing problems in our Anglican communion um, has been when certain provinces decided to um, flaunt that and go the way that the culture is going. So yeah, that's, that's certainly an issue. Um, any, any, any other, anything else? We, we don't have to belabor this point too much. Is age a thing here or not yet? Um, it could. Yeah, it certainly could. Um, yeah, if, if, it's, uh, if somebody is not of lawful age to get married, um, they cannot get married. That's a good reason if someone was, you know, pretending to be, I think in Texas it's 16 and they're really 14. I mean, golly, I can't imagine a 16-year-old getting married, but, you know, once upon a time that was, that was not uncommon. Um, that's definitely a thing. Um, another thing would be if you're, um, if you're blood relations of, of, of a certain closeness, you, you cannot get married. In our prayer book doesn't have this, but you'll find in, in um, the 1662 and some of the older prayer books, especially Church of England prayer books, there's actually a chart and it's basically saying, okay, these relations cannot get married. You know, if you find yourself on this chart, you know, these two people cannot get married. Um, and that's part of, part of what that's important is especially in um, societies where you do have nobility, like like in England, um, and, and there's that desire of people of the same station, social station, to marry. Um, it's not uncommon to see second cousins or you know such things getting married. People that do have some sort of family relation, um, and I don't recall if first cousins were allowed or not. I know that seems to be a thing historically, and I don't recall if the prayer book forbids that or not. Um, I think here in the United States, that's usually, most states don't allow that. So that, that, would, be, that, that would be another, another major reason um, why they could not lawfully be, uh, be joined together. And, and part of what happens with this is that um, an, un, an unlawful marriage ends up being grounds for a legal annulment um, an ecclesiastical annulment, things like that, uh, basically, which states the marriage was never, never, never uh, legally valid. Uh, Delaine. Okay, I have a question. So all of my friends or acquaintances that are Roman Catholic have all had a minimum of two annulments. And then they right. say that their, you know, religion is so much better off because their divorce rate is so low. So is that just them like screwing with the words and making it up and it's really just a divorce and then they go back and say oh well I didn't know this so it's really an annulment or what's the deal with that because it's really only the Roman Catholics that I've noticed that with. Yeah here in the United States um, at a risk of being uncharitable to our Roman Catholic friends yes that's that, that's playing word games um, it really is. Uh, historically that's a little bit less the case um, depending on 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 the time period and, and who's, who's involved. Um, and what happens with an ecclesiastical annulment is they are making a case where it was not sacramentally valid. And so there's not the proper intention. There's some um, improper knowledge going into that. You know, maybe there was not an intention to have kids. You know, there's, there's a lot of different reasons why that could happen. Um, when we talk about, in our history as Anglicans, um, Henry VIII's divorce, he wasn't seeking a divorce. He was actually seeking an ecclesiastical annulment. His reasoning why he was seeking that ecclesiastical annulment was because Catherine of Aragorn had been his brother's wife, and his brother had died. And, you know, she had said um, the marriage had never been consummated, 
and um, the Pope had granted special dispensation for Henry to marry his brother's widow, which, which would have been one of those close relationships forbidden. Um, and, and they make a case from Leviticus even that that would be an, an, a forbidden relationship. And what Henry was saying, you know, the case that Henry and his people were saying is, look, the, the fact that we don't have any surviving children other than, other, than, other than Mary is proof that this biblical curse from Leviticus has come upon us, you know, because I married my brother's wife and that's, that's, that's wrong. Um, did he have some action on the side? Absolutely. Um, all the kings did. That's a wicked thing, but that was something that they all had. Oh, everybody had action on the side and, and, and everybody, you know, and unfortunately the church kind of turned a blind eye to that society, turned a blind eye to that because, you know, people with power, um, being people with power, the main reason, and, and this sort of thing was, was not uncommon among the nobility and especially the royalty at the time to, to ask for an annulment and have it granted. What happens though is that politics get involved and that Catherine's uncle was the Holy Roman Empire, Emperor or nephew or something. One of her, you know, I, I might be getting my exact relations mixed up. Um, and the Holy Roman Emperor had significant, was holding a bunch of stuff over the Pope's head. Um, the Pope was even prisoner in his realm for a while. And so it was not politically expedient for the Pope to grant this annulment, which normally would have been no big deal. Um, and so what ends up happening is that, that kind of that material cause of the English Reformation, Henry's desire for an annulment gets sparked off because of this. And basically the English bishops and theologians try to make the case that, that he should have gotten that ecclesiastical annulment. And of course, everybody today says divorce because we kind of think of them as the same thing. Um, I'm going off on such a tangent here, so I, 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 I apologize. But what, what happens a lot of times, unfortunately, in the United States is that um, it's so easy to find loopholes in the sacramental validity from Rome's perspective that um, the caricature is that as long as you're willing to pay the fees to the tribunal to do all the work, you're going to get your annulment. And um, that seems to be a very fair criticism here in the States. I can't speak for other, other places, but, um, but yeah, basically that is, that is what happens. Um, the general American Catholicism are not, generally good Catholics. Now you do have some good Catholics there, but I mean, how many politicians in, um, in Washington that are supporting abortion are, are Roman Catholics, you know, and that is specifically against church teaching, not to mention against biblical teaching. Um, at the same time, you know, how many on the other side um, support the death penalty, which the Roman Catholic church is against now. I mean, you, you, you just don't have a lot of, you know, American Catholicism is a very lazy Catholicism. And one of the ways that works out is that people certainly get divorces and then, you know, on very flimsy excuses, get ecclesiastical moments. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. Well, there we go. <laughs> let's, uh, let's, let's, let's move on. Let's move on a little bit here. Um, we, we then follow up on the just cause question with the priest saying, I require and charge you both as you will answer at the dreadful day of judgment when the secrets of all hearts shall be disclosed that if either of you know any impediment, why ye may not be lawfully joined together in matrimony, ye do now confess it. For be ye well assured that if any persons are joined together otherwise than as God's word doth allow, their marriage is not lawful. And so that's, that's kind of a, a follow up. Okay. We've asked everybody, we've asked the witnesses, now we're gonna ask the couple themselves. Now we get into the vows themselves. We skip right into it in the Book of Common Prayer service. Um, the minister um, says to the man, you know, uh, so-and-so, wilt thou have this woman to thy wedded wife to live together after God's ordinance in the holy estate of matrimony? Wilt thou love her, comfort her, honor, and keep her in sickness and in health? 
forsaking all others, keep only unto her, so long as ye both shall live? And the man answers, I will. Um, two, two things, again, these, these parts of the vows are something that, again, as English speakers, are um, very much in our linguistic DNA. Like everybody knows, everybody knows these uh, these vows. That's that's what we all think of when we think of, of the wedding vows. Um, second of all, though, note that the response is, "I will, not I do." That's very because we all think it's "I do." but it's actually I will. But, and look, if you look at the language of this, will is the proper grammatical response. I don't know how I do became the thing that um, we, we think of. It kind of, kind of morphs sometimes, but, uh, but that is. And then we, we ask the same basic question of the woman, wilt thou have this man to thy wedded husband to live together after God's ordinance in the holy estate of matrimony? Wilt thou love him, comfort him, honor and keep him in sickness and in health? And forsaking all others, keep thee only unto him, so long as you both shall live, the woman shall answer, I will. Now, here's where we get into some of that historical patterns. It's very interesting. In um, the Roman world of late antiquity, you really had kind of a two-stage marriage ceremony. You had a betrothal, which, was a, which is a very public ceremony. And, and the Jews did this too. They just did it a little bit differently. And this first part is really a holdover of the late Roman betrothal rite, not the actual marriage rite itself. The next set um, of vows that begin at the bottom of page 301 is where we start to get um, the, the old marriage rite itself. Historically, what we had happening when it comes to Christian marriage is that the Christians didn't really do their the ceremony part much different than the Romans had been doing before them. Um, you didn't. You usually would get permission from your priest or from your bishop to um, to go through this, but you you would not um, necessarily have a. Um, priest or a bishop presiding over it, um, you actually just had lay witnesses and kind of a lay member of your community was really kind of doing the, the presiding. And what we see is that we don't have the church overseeing the whole thing in ministerial capacity until about the 10th or 11th century, being a universal concept. Um, this is another reason why we see that there, there has been evolution in the way the church approaches um, the entry into the covenant. It was always something done before God. It was always a holy estate. It was always something we see um, based on these biblical principles that we read about in that first paragraph. But the way it's done uh, very much evolves over time, uh, which is another thing we see with those rites of the church that have their foundation even before the New Testament, but are not sacraments in that narrow definition that our reformers use as of having something, um, having been ordained by Christ, not just commanded, but actually um, he gives us what the basics of it are. He doesn't do that in terms of the, the right itself. Okay, um, we'll stop with questions and comments briefly. If there's anything anybody wants needs to interject, and then we'll, if not, we'll we'll move on to the next part. Okay, uh, Randy, you're going to have to unmute. I I I, uh, I muted everybody there. I was getting some background noise. Okay, go ahead, Randy. Okay, yeah, I, I just was curious about the um, uh, the bride and the groom. Is there uh, flexibility for them to write their own? Vows. No. Uh, no, not that. Okay. Yeah, no, no, there is not. That's, that's one of those things that we see um, very common in the secular world. Um, that, 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 yeah, the, the prayer book is a very um, set form. Um, this is one of those areas where, when it comes to weddings and funerals, this is an area where people have kind of pictures in their heads. And sometimes those pictures are in conflict with um, the church's prescribed way of doing things. Um, 
what could be done is that there could be, you know, yeah. at, at, at the engagement, if there's an engagement party or at the reception, when people are giving speeches, you know, the, those, those kind of own vows can kind of get incorporated into that. Um, the biggest problem with writing your own vows is that frankly, two individuals don't necessarily know what they're talking about enough to write vows that, that work biblically, <laughs> that work theologically, <laughs> you know, and you get some really, frankly, kind of silly sentimental things rather than um, vows in a covenantal sense. Um, so yeah, yeah, own vows, own vows don't work, um, at least not in our tradition. Um, the closest thing we have to it is sometimes folks will request a particular version of the prayer book um, rather than the one that a particular parish uses. Like, for example, I requested at my wedding that our, our priest use um, the Reformed Episcopal Churches because it did have those 1662 era things um, rather than what he was used to from the 79. And I, 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 I find the 79's marriage right to be um, less than ideal in my opinion. Okay, any, 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 anybody else? Delaney? So you said earlier in the beginning that that had to be taken place in the church, whereas nowadays you have a lot of like venue or outdoor weddings. Is that or what? Or what happened oh. there, I guess? Oh, so yeah. So, so when you say originally that that's, that's a very loaded term in, the, in this question. Um, originally, as in, in the early days, you know, really into the early Middle Ages, um, it was, these were often more done privately. I mean, they were done publicly with the community, but it was done not so much in the church. Um, by the late Middle Ages, it's being prescribed to be done at the church door. Um, the prayer book has it done, the original prayer books did have it, did kind of carry over that, um, that sarum use uh, from Salisbury, which is a lot of our liturgy was, um, our English liturgy was, a ba was based on that Latin sarum use. Um, so they did have it. By the 28, they, they do allow for it being done in other venues. So um, the phrase we're using is some proper house. Um, what proper means in that context could be pretty wide. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to do it in just like someone wants to have a wedding in my backyard. I wouldn't want to do that. I mean, but I would think that's less than proper. I mean, after all, that's my children's playground and my dog's place of, you know, doing what dogs do. Um, but, you know, there's different kind of venues for this. That's okay, whatever. Um, but yeah, we, we, we do see that, that developing. And, and I think what, what happens with our 28 is that that rubric wasn't really observed like it should have been. That happens a lot. Um, you may recall from ages ago, we talked about how in our morning prayer service, it allows the congregation to speak the general Thanksgiving with the minister. It didn't used to do that. Why does it do that with the 28? Because they were doing it. <laughs> they, everybody was saying it with the minister. So they just said, okay, we'll just change the rubric. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's, um, that's, that's part of the way these things happen. That, that's legitimate um, liturgical development. Okay, let's move on. So then um, we're still towards the bottom of 301. We have the minister saying, who giveth this woman to be married to this man? Um, that's really a symbol of kind of transferring of spheres of authority. Sometimes if you're dealing with um, a woman who's been independent for a long time, you know, my, my wife had been such that this could, some, some people find this to be a little offensive or kind of are you talking, this is all women as property sort of thing. Um, okay, it's, it's old fashioned, but that doesn't mean it's bad, right? I mean, there, there is, spheres of authority is a thing. We don't, we don't need to be, kind of weird fundamentalist folks to, to recognize um, that that's, that's an important symbolic thing, if nothing else. Uh, so so that, that, that's there. Then we have the, 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 the next set of vows. So we actually have a two-part vows, which is very interesting. 
And I do think that when we're, when we think popularly, we do kind of mix these two sets together. So the husband, the husband then says, and the, the minister kind of instructs him to do this, or the groom says, I so-and-so take thee so-and-so to my wedded wife to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part according to God's holy ordinance. And thereto I plight thee my troth. Um, there's a couple of phrases in the old prayer books that's missing from our 28. Um, with, with my body, I do the worship. That's one that's out. Um, the, uh, with my, you know, something about giving my worldly goods or whatever, that's, that's out. Um, there's some reasons for that. I'm not fully sure why. Some of it I'm sure is because the, the understanding of worship kind of morphed in English since then. That's part of it. You know, now we think of worship as something that's only reserved for God. Um, then that was not necessarily the case. If you are a, um, a Greek, if you, if you're familiar with some of the discussions about, um, saints and images and stuff in Greek, you know, there's that distinction between, um, latria and dulia, right? Um, you know, veneration and what we would say worship. English used to have that, that distinguishing between worship and adoration. Um, worship used to mean more what we say with veneration today, um, adoration or what we mean by today worship. But now a baby is adorable, you know, and only God is worshiped. Whereas once upon a time, um, you know, the judge was worshipful and only God was, was adored. So that's just kind of a shift in English. So I do think that's part of it, um, but I don't, I don't know for sure. Um, the bride then, then says something very similar. I so-and-so take thee so-and-so to my wedded husband to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part according to God's holy ordinance. And thereto I give thee my troth. And then there's the exchange of the wedding rings. Um, the wedding rings was something that was very much opposed by the Puritans in the early days of the Reformation. Um, there, were, there were several things that they had significant issue with the prayer book and the Church of England establishment. Um, wedding rings, the use of the surplus, so the white garment, at, um, you know, that, that, that white garment that, that the priest wears, kneeling at communion, and the sign of the cross on the baby's head at baptism. The Puritans thought all of these things were just uh, uh, popish super, superstition, you know, that, but um, the, the Church of England insisted upon retaining them, um, including the wedding ring. And these days we look at a lot of those things as being very, you know, not, not that big of a deal, but to the Puritans, these were very much lines in the sand issues and also to the established church, keeping them were lying in the sand issues. In our 28, we add a blessing to the ring uh, of the ring that's optional. Um, that was not done in prior editions to the prayer book. Um, we can see this kind of as a, um, one of the successes of the Anglo-Catholics um, in, in the, in the late 19th century and early 20th century leads to um, the blessing of the ring uh, being in, in, uh, in our marriage service. Um, there was a hesitancy to bless objects in older versions of the prayer book. There was um, a fear of potential superstition with that. And it's not that they forbade it, they just didn't do it. Um, but that does come back into vogue uh, with the Anglo-Catholic movement in our circles. Uh, questions, comments, thoughts um, on, on, on this, this part? Matt. I have a question. Um, on that death do us part, um, what, what, what motive, do you know anything about that particular language? Because I know with other traditions, they have, uh, I think they use the scripture, love never ends. So there, there's kind of like, there's implications in scripture because love doesn't end. The use of, you know, death through us part is kind of saying that that love doesn't continue in, in the, the afterlife, so to speak. So I was just curious if you knew anything about that language. I always suspected it came from um, something that Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians. Um, he talks about... In, um, and and I, I can't remember the address off the top of my head, but, 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 but he, he does mention very specifically, oh, 1 Corinthians 7, Pam is saying, 
um, he does mention very specifically this idea that, um, you know, someone that, that marries after their spouse dies, it's, it's lawful to do so. Um, but someone that, that, that marries while their spouse is still living is uh, doing things unlawfully, you know, and so, and he's using it to illustrate a bigger point, if memory serves. But, 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 but I do believe, I always thought that's where, where that language came from. I, I could be wrong, but that's what I always assumed. Um, and, and I think it is important that the church has, Christianity has always acknowledged the, the right of a widow or widower to be remarried. Um, the church has not, I, I would say the church has never condoned divorce, although the church has occasionally allowed it. I, I think sometimes these days we've gotten way too permissive about it. Um, you know, some of the other issues with, with sexuality and morality in, in the Western church, I think we, it really, the ball starts to get rolling, rolling with, with accepting society's position on divorce. Um, but, um, yeah, so, so there, and there's certainly been times when, when the church has never allowed it whatsoever, or they would, you know, have to couch it in terms like annulments, which in some cases has be, been abused to be basically divorce under a different name. But the church has always allowed um, a widow or widower to, to remarry. Now, the exception to that has been that in some traditions, clergy who are married um, cannot remarry. And um, this, this is, I know this is the case in the Eastern Church, the Eastern Churches. Um, a married man can become ordained, but an ordained man cannot marry in the Eastern churches. And so, um, yeah, basically what that, what that means is, is A, you got to get married before you become a priest. And B, if your, if your wife dies, you, you, stay, you stay single. Um, I've been told that one of the funny um, results of that is that there is a huge marriage market um, near Eastern Orthodox seminaries as guys are getting closer to their ordination date. <laughs> um, that, that, that tends to be a, um, all a stereotypical thing in, in Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, but um, with, with that tendency allow, um, aside, yeah, remarriage of, of, of widows and widowers have always been allowed. And in the Anglican tradition, um, the post-Reformation world, um, we've never, yeah, priests can marry widowed, yeah, priests that are widowers can, can remarry. There's no, there's never been a, a problem against that. Well, uh, just to add a comment to that, um, sorry, Chris is stepping out the door. Uh, I was reading St. Basil and he actually, his recommendations was to limit it. So like a woman could remarry like a few, like one or two times, but like after that, then it was explicitly forbidden. And then there were like age restrictions on, on women too, uh, like I think actually men and women, I think it was like past the age of like 65, you could no longer uh, marry. So I, I was just kind of wondering, you know, there's kind of some history around around that and different patriarchs I heard would have different standards for, uh, you know, what, what they, what would re they would require, so. Yeah, I suspect a lot of that has to do with. Um, I see Delaney waving her hand. I'll I'll I'll, I'll uh, shut up in just a second, Delaney. Um, yeah, I, I suspect a lot of that has to do with differing disciplines in different regions, um, kind of like how you know the East and the West have different um, historically different disciplines regarding clerical marriage as well. Um, Delaney, you had something to add on that on that issue. Uh, my uh, was it? Uh, sorry, the explanation I heard for that was because it's not the one in Paul, but when Jesus was talking, when they asked him the question about whose wife is she, and he's like, nobody's, because there's not marriage like that in heaven, everybody's all whatever, that that's the mark of it, because that's the sign, the end of that covenant, which ends at death, because you're no longer under that, because there's that whole other deal once you get to heaven, and that's where that till death do us part, only because now you're under a new covenant, under the new heaven and the new earth and all that jazz, was the explanation I was told. And you, and you certainly see in Old Testament times and, and in first and second temple Jewish times, nobody had issues with, with widows 
or widowers remarrying either. Uh, and I, so I think, I think, you know, I don't think Jesus is saying anything new there, but he's kind of making a, a theological point saying, okay, you're, you're asking the question that just doesn't, doesn't make sense theologically. It's, it's a non sequitur. Um, I mean, that's, yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's just kind of a, a foolish question. Uh, and, and I, and I think, I do think that's very important because there are religions that, that do have this kind of celestial marriage thing. And we're thinking of the Mormons, for example, and that, that's just not, that's just not biblical. Um, you know, Jesus specifically says against it. <laughs> so, and, you know, I heard something that I, that I thought was kind of interesting once. I'm not, I, you know, again, take this for whatever it's worth, but, um, you know, that, that closeness that you have with your spouse here on earth, um, that level of knowing another person is not going to be limited in that way in heaven. You know, there, there certainly is not, you know, there's not sexuality in heaven in that way, but, but in terms of um, the mystery that mar that marriage symbolizes, you know, we're talking Ephesians five stuff um, is something that we all share in, in the world to come. And so, yeah, yeah. Ma marriage does not continue into the world to come. Uh, you know, my priesthood doesn't continue into the world to come. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be leading mass, celebrating mass and, and leading the offices in the world to come. You know, that's, that's very much an earthly vocation because of what is necessary here on earth in terms of those mysteries and symbols and whatnot. Randy, you, you had something, Randy? Uh, I was just gonna, a couple of verses come to mind. Uh, yeah, uh, Romans 7, uh, you know, Romans 7, 2, uh, for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband. Uh, or the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released uh, from the law of her husband. So then if while yeah, her husband... That's the I was thinking of, yeah. She uh, will be called an adulteress, but if the husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. But Romans 7... Yeah, that was the passage... Uh, yeah, that was the passage I was thinking of, not the First Corinthians seven. First Corinthians seven is is another passage about marriage that y'all that we ought to read. But yeah, that's actually the one I was thinking of. Thank you, Randy. Um, yeah, that's exactly the one I was thinking of. Very good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Matthew, Matthew uh, twenty twenty two is that one about you know uh, Jesus was talking about the resurrection, and he says, uh, "For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage." Yeah, that's that's, that's one that yeah, I that's exactly right. About. Yeah, that's that's the one that so, Delaney is referring to. Very good. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. Um, okay, um, bottom of three hundred two. Let's let's move on. Um, then the, uh, the so the, the the rings are done. The rings have been blessed. The priest says, "Let us pray," and leaves them in the Lord's prayer. We always have the Lord's prayer. That's always part of our offices. Always part of our services. And then we have a few um, concluding prayers. Um, not all of these prayers were in the older prayer books. Um, I think only this first one on page 303 that begins, O eternal God, creator and preserver of all mankind, giver of all spiritual grace, the author of everlasting life, send thy blessing upon these thy servants, this man and this woman, whom we bless in thy name, that they, living faithfully together, may surely perform and keep the vow and covenant betwixt them made, whereof this ring is given and received as a token and pledge, and may ever remain in perfect love and peace together and live according to thy laws through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's, that one um, is in all the old prayer books. These next two, which are optional in our prayer book, um, I believe were added for our prayer book. Uh, o Almighty God, creator of mankind, who only art the wellspring of life, bestow upon these thy servants, if it be thy will, the gift and heritage of children. No, this, this, this was an optional one, I think, in the older ones too. Um, and grant that they may see their children brought up in thy faith and fear to the honor and glory of thy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And so this, this is kind of bringing us back to those reasons that were not in ours, <laughs> but were in some of the older ones. Uh, the, the, the first or the second of those reasons, um, the children. And then uh, this next one, 
O God, who has so consecrated the state of matrimony that in it is represented the spiritual marriage and unity betwixt Christ and his church, look mercifully upon these thy servants that they may love, honor, and cherish each other, and so live together in faithfulness and patience and wisdom and true godliness, that their home may be a haven of blessing and peace through the same Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, ever one God, world without end. Amen. And then again, this kind of gives voice to the other of those missing reasons. And then the priest joins their right hands together. And uh, traditionally, we would take this big, long stole and wrap our stole around their hands at this time. That's where we get the phrase tying the knot from. Those whom God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. And then he says, the minister says, for as much as so-and-so and so-and-so have consented together in holy wedlock and have witnessed the same before God in this company and thereto have given and pledged their troth, let each to the other and have declared the same uh, by the giving and receiving a ring and by joining of hands, I pronounce that they are man and wife in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And then um, as, the, as they kneel, uh, the priest concludes with a blessing. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, bless, preserve, and keep you. The Lord mercifully with his favor look upon you and fill you with all spiritual benediction and grace that ye may so live together in this life that in the world to come ye may have life everlasting. Amen. What's missing from the end of this that we all think of uh, for marriages? Delaney. I now pronounce you man and wife. Oh, that's there. That, that that's was, what I was um, thinking. Yeah. Oh, you know what? That's true. That's not there. Oh, no, that is there. I pronounce that they are man and wife in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So that's that second last paragraph. So yeah, that's, that is there. It's just not a standalone. It's part of a, another prayer. You may now kiss the bride. That's right, Kelly. Of course, <laughs> the, Kelly. The, the kiss, the kiss. <laughs> I could hear Delaney on Kelly on, on, on Aspen's uh, microphone with that one. That's <laughs> um, yeah. The, the kiss, the kiss is not in our in our rubrics. Usually, we would put that before the blessing. Um, almost everybody inserts that. Um, we only have a few minutes, but uh, I wanted to add a couple other things before before we end. Um, so once the church does start to um, really oversee the marriage ceremony, um, what ends up happening is that a nuptial mass becomes pretty typical. And in the older prayer books, they didn't have necessarily a specific nuptial mass. You just did Holy Communion as a sign for the day. Um, you know, using the, the normal assigned stuff for the week, you just kind of rolled into it. It was... Sometimes it was more common than others. Um, in our prayer book, so one of the things that 1928 does is they do have a collect epistle and a gospel specifically for a marriage, a marriage communion, so a nuptial mass. You'll find this on page 267. And the collect, um, the collect you would use at communion says, O eternal God, we humbly beseech thee favorably to behold these thy servants now, or if the uh, service is done depending on where, where the marriage service is done, you could say, or about to be, joined in wedlock according to thy holy ordinance, and grant that they, seeking first thy kingdom and righteousness, may obtain thy manifold blessings of thy grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And then the, the epistle is Ephesians 5, which is um, where Paul lays out how marriage is a mystery um, pointing to Christ and the church. Um, and the gospel is Matthew 19, um, have you not read um, he which made them in the beginning, male and female? So that passage that, that Randy, Randy read earlier. I really like that we have those specific ones in there, especially Ephesians 5. Um, the interesting thing is that Greek, wor that Greek, that Greek word for mystery um, in Latin is sacrament. So um, even though we have that very narrow definition of kind of big S sacrament from the from the um, reformers, we do see that there is a sacramental nature to marriage that is explicit biblically. Um, it's just a different kind of thing than those two, um, than, than baptism and communion, um, which, which points back to how we do see these other five um, commonly called sacraments um, kind of 
they're still very important and there still is grace involved. There still is a mystery involved in these things, even if it's not meeting that definition, that very narrow definition of the reformers. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's not, and, and again, a lot of that ends up being semantics. It depends on how you, how you define it, but that Ephesians five passage is super important. The way we would typically do this um, in most 28 parishes is you would usually do the, um, marriage office, so that page 300 that we, that we just looked at all hour, you would do that and then go into communion after that. So you would have the office followed by communion. Um, I guess theoretically you could do it the other way around, um, or you could do the marriage in between, you know, after the hom or before the homily, you know, that, you know, rubrically that could all work. Um, what's done in a lot of modern prayer books, and frankly, I'm not a fan of this. The 79 does this, the 2019 ACNA does this, is that they replace anti-communion. They replace the liturgy of the word, all the stuff that comes before the homily, with the marriage service. The reason why I don't like that is the other thing that they put there is they end up, they end up skipping confession and absolution at communion when they do that. Um, I, I, I did do a, a wedding, um, within the last couple of years using the 2019, it must've been last year because the 2019 was brand new at the time. And I remember being very annoyed at that fact of it. Um, but you know, that, that's again, that's, that's one of those areas where, where, um, the, the, the people getting married and the priest kind of have to negotiate sometimes. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I do prefer the way we do it. And what we find out is that in the, in the post-1960s, post-Vatican II era liturgies, for everything that's what they do, they end up just chopping off the liturgy of the word from communion and turning everything into a special type of communion service rather than its own right with communion. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm just I'm just not a big fan of that. I, I I don't think that's certainly in our tradition that's not the historical way. And I, I I just like the theology of doing it the other way better, even if it makes for a long service. So, okay, we've only got about five minutes before I'm gonna gonna call it a night. But uh, I'll be happy to entertain uh, questions or comments for those five minutes. Now what? One thought I did have a question, uh, Father Isaac, was um, was a possibility of there's certain cultural uh, uh, habits or customs that come in, like in the Hispanic world or Latin world, you know, there are things like the lasso or the bag of money or things along those lines that get incorporated. I don't know if that might be a Catholic Catholic tradition or it's kind of I see that in, in, in the Latin world, and I wonder is there flexibility in that uh, in terms of uh, parts of the world. I think like so in Nigeria, I'm wondering. Yeah, I think some of that would be a case-by-case -case basis, um, just depending on how those customs go about. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not familiar with the Latin American ones um, enough to kind of speak to that specifically. Um, you know, and that, that is one of those benefits where you have, you know, you can't have those kind of national um, books of common prayer. I mean, Nigeria has their own official book of common prayer. Um, so they can, they can kind of incorporate some of those, those differences. And the, and the articles of religion are, are friendly to that kind of thing. A certain kind of, you know, hyper prayer book conservatism that says everybody should never have used anything but the 1662 um, that doesn't really line up with, with the articles of religion, nor, nor with, with our history. That's, that's more, like I said, kind of hyper-conservatism. So I, I would imagine that, that there's, there's ways to work some of those things in. Um, yeah, yeah, and it just depends on how those things work. <laughs> so. Got a lot of questions for Father Jerry when he gets here. <laughs> Oh, and I'm sure they do. They do things very interestingly over there. Um, yeah, I, I don't. You know, in in the missionary world, things things are often a lot more fluid. Um, so, yeah. But and 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 again, weddings are one of those things where 
a certain amount of flexibility is is not uncommon because people have very strong opinions about how they how they picture their wedding. Um, it's very very seldom that you see someone that just wants to say, "Yeah, you're you're the priest, do your thing." Um, I really like it when that happens, but that's 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 not that's not um, that's not normal. <laughs> I get that more for funerals than for weddings, uh, but uh, yeah. All right. Well, then I'm going to go ahead and um, end the video. Thank you all for uh, joining us on our ninth week. Mm -hmm.